Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. Eric Nemchuk here with Stephen Trinkwald. As always, we are wrapping up our 2023 season outlooks, team outlooks rather, uh, with the Phoenix Mercury, Stephen. Uh, an up and down season in 2022. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Phoenix Mercury. Last year, they went 15 and 21. That was good for the eighth seed uh, final team in the playoffs last year. They had a negative 3.4 net rating. That was good for ninth. They were eighth in offense, 100.7 offensive rating. Eighth in defense, 104.1 defensive rating. Uh, can't do much more eighth seed than being eighth in both offense yeah. <laughs> and defense. Um, they lost to Vegas in a two-game series where they were outscored by 53 points in two games. I think one of the less competitive series that we've seen in recent WNBA vintage, of course, a series with no Skylar Diggins-Smith, no Diana Taurasi, uh, not a lot of high leverage uh, initiating in that one. And I mean, no one was going to compete with the Aces in the first round, but uh, Phoenix certainly did not really stand a chance there. Least of all, a patchwork roster full of injuries and, and what have you. Yep. So it was a little bit of a, a tale of, of two halves for Phoenix, of course, dealing with the wrongful detention of Brittany Griner in Russia. No, no real easy way to talk about that. So we, we're, we're glad Brittany Griner is home, but they, of course, did you know make some free agent moves, um, thinking that obviously that Griner was going to be able to play with them last year, including signing Tina Charles in free agency and bringing over Diamond to Shields in a sign-in trade. DeShields made it through the entire season with Phoenix before being traded in this offseason. Tina Charles uh, did not. It was, I think, obvious early on that Charles was just not meshing with kind of what Phoenix was doing or Phoenix was not meshing with what Tina Charles wanted to do. They ended up settling on a, a contract divorce, uh, official WNBA terminology. That's not us. That's what it's actually called. Before Tina Charles, otherwise known as a buyout in basically every other league, uh, before Tina Charles ended up in Seattle, Phoenix was 5-11 in games that Tina Charles played and 10-10 and in games without her. They had a negative 7 net rating in those games where Tina Charles participated in a negative 0.7 net rating. So basically playing even in the games without Tina Charles. Massive, massive team-wide improvement. You know, not to pin it all on Charles, but I think it was just better suited playing to their their guards' strengths, uh, kind of opening things up without Charles than, you know, playing through the post. You know, Just Charles's 16 games with the Mercury would be ninth last season in total post-up possessions. You know, they kind of just went from playing through Tina Charles as as Tina Charles teams are want to do often through the post to, you know, playing more from the perimeter, kind of opening things up for their guards and playing through Tarasi and, and Skylar Diggins-Smith and Diamond to Shields. And of course, Tarasi and Diggins-Smith. Diggins-Smith, one of the best penetrating guards, if not the best penetrating guard in the WNBA. And Diana Tarasi obviously needs no introduction as an offensive player. It, it almost mirrored uh, what happened with Phoenix in 2020, I think, after Brittany Griner left the bubble. Um, it, it, it did kind of open up their offense back then. And I think the same thing kind of happened in 2022. Of course, uh, Diamond Shields and Sophie Cunningham also playing big roles for this Mercury team. I mean, they weren't great. As you said, they were basically about as average as a team could possibly be. But when you're talking about competing for the eighth seed, that was plenty good enough. And they were able to make an improbable run to the playoffs um, before getting promptly extinguished by the eventual champions. Yeah, and we really kind of saw a big difference in 
you know, how much their guards were able to be involved after the Tina Charles contract divorce. Uh, Skylar Diggins-Smith, 25% usage with Tina Charles on the team, 30% usage uh, afterwards. Diana Taurasi, 23.5% usage. Uh, that's a really low number for Taurasi. It really is. Uh, 27% after. So, I mean, those those numbers, I think, say it all, especially Diggins-Smith, the 30% usage. I mean, she's, you know, one of the best players in the league. You, you want her to have the ball in her hands as, as much as she can, uh, not only... As you mentioned, one of the best dribble penetrating guards uh, of all time, uh, definitely in the, the game right now. But also, you know, she's uh, an adequate player setting up others, um, you know, obviously shifting the defense. She's a, a real special player. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like she'll be playing for the Mercury any longer. I'm not sure we'll see her at all this season as she's welcoming out her on her second, welcoming her second yeah, child. Of course, out on maternity. Yeah, we, we, of course, support her taking all the time she needs there. Um, one person who did not see a big increase in usage before or after the Tina Charles experiment was Brianna Turner. Just have to shout this out. Some historic numbers for Turner last season, 127 shooting possessions in almost 1200 minutes in the regular season, 6.9% usage on the season. Eric, not only, well, I thought you were going to say nice, but that's okay. Not, <laughs> not only was she the only player in league history to log a thousand minutes in post under a seven percent usage but she's the only player in league history to log even 800 minutes in post even uh under a 10 percent usage so clearing those benchmarks comfortably in terms of not finishing possessions not doing anything yeah, with basketball with a shot uh free throw or turnover only player in league history to play 30 minutes per game and post under a 10 percent usage so I mean, she's never been a high, high usage player, but the... How is that possible? I, I don't know. Certainly the kind of pick and roll game you thought you might see with Turner as... And remember, this was without Brittany Griner, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, always just kind of the lone big on the court, uh, at least in the second half of the season. Um, I mean, granted, they they played with some high usage perimeter players. You know, uh, we mentioned Diggins and, and Tarasi already. Diamond Shields was one of the higher usage players in the league last year in her own right. So um, this is not meant at all as a criticism of Turner. You know, she's very good at, at what she does. She plays within her game, but it was, I did have to kind of shout out her, you know, like I said, her historically low usage in the 2022 season. Low volume. I mean, it's not, it's not good or bad, although I would argue it's worse than it is better, but it's just a very interesting stat. You know, we like, we like our stats on this podcast and, yeah, you definitely do not see a starting caliber player or any player in the WNBA posting a usage rate below 7%. So um, history was definitely made for Phoenix last season in one way or the other. Uh, I think we can, in short order, move on to the, the 2023 season here. As we mentioned, the 2022 season kind of ended with a little bit of a dud. You know, I think, you know, we, by, the end, by the end of that playoff run, I mean, there were just so many players who wouldn't have factored into their plans otherwise. I mean, they just had so many injuries. Yeah, it just was not really a real representative kind of sample of who that team was, even just during the second half of the season. But thankfully, this season, we will be welcoming back Brittany Griner to the WNBA. I think everybody is excited about that. The Mercury also are bringing in Mariah Jefferson, who they signed in free agency, and then Michaela Onuere, who they brought in in the trade where they... Uh, traded out Diamond to Shields, one of their departures this season. 
we expect, Eric, I mean, nothing has officially been said as much, but we expect Skylar Diggins-Smith will not be playing for this team this season or, or ever again, basically, based on kind of whispers around the league. We don't really like to speculate on off-court things, but, I mean, there were some things that were literally captured on camera throughout the course of the season and were literally tweeted from said player's uh, account um, that would suggest that there's a relationship there here that's probably not salvageable. Key nurse, we should say, also left in free agency. She did not play for them last year as she recovered from her torn ACL, but she was on their roster for the entirety of the year last year. So a little bit of a, a new look team. I mean, they still have some obviously very familiar faces with Tarasi and, and Cunningham and Bree Turner. Those are, you know, basically three starters here. The end of the bench, I think we can kind of get to a little bit later, but I guess I, I wanted to to kind of start out asking like, if Skylar Diggins-Smith was going to play for this team, if she was expected to play for this team again, do you think they would have made the Diamond to Shields trade to open up room to sign Mariah Jefferson? Um, no. I mean, I don't think DeShields was a great fit with this team, but probably makes more sense with the rest of the Listen, team than, than Jefferson. If you have an all-caliber, an all-WNBA caliber point guard, you can make some things work that may not work otherwise. And I think the fact that they made this deal in order to free up the cap space to just specific, to specifically sign a different point guard, it kind of gives a hint as to where their thought process was. I don't want to call it desperate, but you know, at that point in free agency, it, it did appear clear that, you know, the free agency market was drying up and that the Mercury didn't really have anything at point guard. Because you remember Shea Petty was also injured. So they needed something there. And I guess DeShields, with the emergence of Cunningham as an offensive threat last season, maybe wasn't really in their long-term plans as, as much as they thought she would be earlier. Did you have something else to add on that? No, I think that's that's probably right. I mean, Jefferson was one of, if not the kind of last big deal that, that happened. I, I can't remember... Oh, I mean, she must have been after Marina Mabry. I mean, those were kind of the, the last two dominoes to fall was the Mabry signing and the Mariah Jefferson signing. In terms of like who was available in free agency. Right, right, right. Chronologically, um, yeah. You know, those are kind of the, the last things to kind of happen here. I mean, Mariah Jefferson and Diggins Smith, I, I think, are both basically one position players. You know, you're not going to, you wouldn't be playing those two together all that much. You mentioned Shea Petty was re signed, is still on this team, but we don't really know what her timeline looks like. I think even, you know, with the emergence of Cunningham as, as a starting caliber wing, you know, Diamond Shields probably would make more sense with the Skylar Diggins-Smith-centric Phoenix Mercury than, than Mariah Jefferson did. But And and we saw Jefferson, you know, three years, basically 141000 average annual value for Jefferson. I mean, I would honestly guess, Eric, that there were probably higher offers out there on shorter-term deals, Minnesota and Seattle probably being two of them. If you just look at her season last year in a vacuum, like she certainly performed that average annual value relative to the rest of the league. You know, there's some health concerns and, and availability history with, with Jefferson, but how good she was when she went to Minnesota, I think is kind of reflective of a, a bigger payday, frankly. Yeah, she, I mean, she definitely earned that bigger contract when she played for the Lynx last season. We talked about it in our Lynx episode. She really revitalized her career um, and did a lot with a little, if you could put it that way. So 
I'm sure the Mercury, you know, I think you're right. I think other teams may have offered her a little bit more money than that. But I think this is a pretty good situation for her to at least keep that rolling. Um, you mentioned there, are some, there were some injury concerns. The first question I would have would be, you know, it's, it's terrific to see her back healthy again, playing starting caliber minutes. Let's see her do it again, you know, in a different environment completely. Because Minnesota last season was kind of just trying to scrape by. Uh, maybe make the playoffs, maybe not. But this Mercury team, I think there's really no doubt that they're going to try to get one last run out of this Tarazi-Griner combination before the inevitable happens and, uh, you know. Yeah, and if you remember, uh, Mariah Jefferson had... It was announced that she was going to go play for Avenido in the offseason, and then she she, she didn't. So I'm not sure if contract negotiations kind of played a factor in that or, or what was going on there. But it'll be interesting to see kind of how much she could replicate that and you know you kind of invoked the word desperate and that's probably not the you know a fair term to use but they obviously needed something at primary ball handler like you the, the, the clock was ticking and you know they're running out of options if they didn't sign her they just don't have another healthy point guard on roster you know i, I don't think tarasi is going to be a primary ball handler at at age 42 or however old she is these days uh, i don't think she's that old age 40 full-time i don't know i i guess it's good that they could kind of get it worked out. I, I don't think that trading Diamond to Shields and bringing in Mariah Jefferson, other than the element of they don't have Skylar Diggins-Smith anymore, I don't think that's so hampering of a trade-off that they have kind of materially hurt their, their chances of being competitive. Do you? Not this season, no. No, I mean, I think... I want to call it a lateral move because Jefferson and DeShields are obviously not even close to being the same player, but uh, for the big picture, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it really... In fact, I think it'd actually be a better fit this season, don't you? Because, uh, again, otherwise, who would they have? At yeah, for sure. I, I think so. They Other than, I mean, I don't even know how much of, of a factor this was in, in this element of it. They gave up swap rights on a future first-round pick, a 2025 first-round pick, but that went to New York, and they brought back Michaela Onyenwere. So I don't even... I think they could have done this all without really even getting rid of that first-round pick. If they, you know, with a four team trade, I'm sure there were so many different iterations of that trade before it actually happened. So, who's to say that wasn't on the table? Yeah, true. I mean, yeah, I, I could, you know, be misrepresenting. You know how, you know how difficult a, a four team trade is to pull off in this league? Sure. I did just want to talk a little bit more about Jefferson here. You know, roughly 14 and a half points and six and a half assists per 36 minutes last season three turnovers per 36 minutes, a career high in two-point shooting, a career high, perhaps unsustainably so, in three-point shooting, you know, upwards of the high 40s in her three-point shooting. You don't really expect anyone to be able to carry that over a year over a year. More importantly, probably basically a career high in three-point volume and a near career high in free throw attempt rate after... It's tough to even say that she wasn't playing well in Dallas, but she certainly wasn't given enough opportunity to play exceedingly well or exceedingly poorly over the kind of two seasons after she had returned from injury there. Yeah. I, I mean, what I'm interested to see is how can she play with Diana Shirazi this time? Because you, well, not this time, uh, this season, because remember when she was in Dallas, I think the fit between her and Enrique Gumbawale just wasn't there. Obviously a, an offense very much uh, dominated by Gumbawale down there in Dallas. Shirazi, as you mentioned, another very high usage guard. I think Tarazi is a little bit better than Agunbuale, maybe at, at getting her backcourt par- partner involved. But in Minnesota, you had Jefferson, like the unquestioned leader of that team's offense, right? 
this time, I think you might once again be seeing Jefferson kind of play off the ball a little bit more. So what do you think about that? I mean, if that's the case and she's able to carry over what she did last season, 96th percentile as a spot-up player last year, good. 33 for 68 on catch-and-shoot threes. Uh, again, that's not really numbers that you expect anybody to be able to sustain, but if she's sliding off the ball a little bit more, obviously you expect the offense to play through Brittany Griner to some capacity. You know, the spot-up shooting there is definitely going to be a huge asset for for that team she's gotten some good practice making post entry passes to a legendary post scorer last year and and i think griner is probably even easier to get the ball to down there than than sylvia falls is with her amazing catch radius you know uh i think i agree with you that you know tarasi is a little bit more adept at just involving everybody else obviously a, a, a high usage player in her own right but arike is sort of a unique player in terms of kind of her what she does and what she doesn't do to, to kind of get others involved, you know, of course, close to like a 30% usage player herself. I think honestly, like they maybe even got a little worse on defense, bringing in Jefferson over Skylar Diggins Smith, as much as like Diggins Smith has kind of a not great defensive reputation, but you know, Diggins Smith can, on at least... the basketball, I think she's okay. Who Diggins like, yeah, like yeah. at the point of attack, I think she's at least serviceable compared to Jefferson, who is physically, I think just going to get beat just about every time. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think of just the starting group in general, you know, bringing in Jefferson? I think this is the season that they finally, I shouldn't say finally, because it's not like she's some high prospect, but this is the season that I, Sophie Cunningham kind of comes into the season. I think the presumed starter, you know, she sort of yeah. floated between starter and, and bench, but, you know, had a very, very productive season last year. You look at the starters and it's it's not awful, you know, uh, the, the bench is another story and we'll get to it. This is a, a pretty decently talented offensive group in, in the starting lineup here. Well, whenever you have Brittany Griner on the floor, you're going to have the best post-up player in the league. And that's that's a luxury that really I don't think any other team has now, right? I mean, with, with Sylvia Fowler's retirement, um, they're, going to be play, they're going to be doing something very specific, and that's getting Brittany Griner the ball in the post very often. And with a vet like Tarazi, and you know, she and Griner have had that chemistry for many, many years now, that alone, I think, can at least buoy this team to at least an average, an average offense. And then if you factor in Cunningham's improvement, I mean, Cunningham was, was great the second half of last season when she was kind of playing that de facto small ball four, uh, held up a lot better than I anticipated her to. So if, if Jefferson can at least be serviceable at point guard, you know, obviously there's, there's the matter of uh, your fifth starter and Bree Turner never shooting the basketball, but she does some other things offensively that I think don't really show up in the box score. Um, you know, screening, lob threat, stuff like that. Uh, I think I agree with you. This this should be at least the starting lineup, playoff caliber, for sure. Maybe not like a like a top four seed, but enough high end talent to win them enough games. And a little bit more on Cunningham. I wonder how much her game will be affected, kind of going back to playing with two traditional bigs. You know, you mentioned that she was kind of really able to expand her game playing as more of a small ball four, or at least, you know, with, with just one traditional center on the bench, you know, they went to diamond to shields who I would consider the four in that lineup quite a bit, but they also just, uh, when they really, really lit it up was when Shea Petty was kind of the fifth player around Turner, Tarasi, Diggin Smith and Sophie Cunningham, that lineup in 257 minutes had basically a 110 offensive rating. Very, very good. 
sub in diamond to shields for uh, shape heady and it, it looks a little bit worse but you know basically playing to a an even net rating with a below average offense but well, Cunningham's not going to get to shoot the ball nearly as often. That's the thing. I mean, her usage rate was on the lower side last year anyway, but you imagine it would kind of continue to to slide down. Um, but 90th percentile in true shooting last year, I, as much as I thought she sort of expanded her game from inside the arc, she did still basically take two-thirds of her shots from three, but she was 42.5% shooting on over 150 catch-and-shoot threes. This was kind of the player that she was profiled to be coming out of Missouri and it, it really kind of took a long time for her to be able to actually hit threes. You know, she was not a good three point shooter for, you know, up until basically last year. That's true. And I'm, I'm wondering, this is something we bring up from time to time on this podcast. I'm wondering if that's just the sample size, you know, I mean, it, it, I think it's kind of weird that a player would be such a good shooter in college, then forget how to shoot in the, for a few years in the WNBA. Maybe he was, you know, uh, you know, condi- taking a while to get adjusted to WNBA conditioning or, or things like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, she's definitely a player who is very, as you like to say, malleable. Um, so even if she doesn't get to shoot the ball as often, I mean, figure if you're if you're playing a post up heavy offense, uh, another shooter at small forward that can't hurt, right? Yeah, absolutely. I wonder how the other fifty percent of her her game looks last year because. Uh, 50% of her possessions came as spot-ups last year. You know, I mentioned how good she was as a catch-and-shoot player. That shouldn't really go anywhere, right? But the other 50%, you know, she was in the 99th percentile on cuts, the 81st percentile in transition. Those opportunities, you know, the cutting, playing with two traditional bigs, and the transition without Skylar Diggins-Smith and Diamond to Shields, like, those opportunities might be a little bit harder to come by, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, the, the cuts in particular, because usually if, with this starting lineup, it's Brianna Turner benefiting from the cuts, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, you're going to have Griner on one block surveilling the defense with her amazing ability to just pass over any double team. And that leads to Brianna Turner kind of just getting to the front of the rim. It looks a little bit different as uh, a wing player trying to find those opportunities off ball, I think. Okay, so anything else you want to say about the starting lineup? Like you said, uh, mostly very established players here. Uh the bench, as you said... Hold on. One, one last thing I wanted to say about the okay. starting lineup. Uh, is Diana Taurasi a positive impact player at this point of her career? Oh, that's a spicy question. I, I get where you're going with this, um, and that defensively she's just atrocious. I mean, I think she's still a, a good offensive player. And No, I agree. Normally, you know, I, I value offense weighted more than defense. Like, I don't think it's a 50-50 proposition. Taurasi might be just the least impactful or the most negatively impactful defensive player in the league at moments at, at least um like you have in our notes uh she's past the point of even faking trying on defense um, i'm not usually someone who questions effort especially on defense but i mean come on <laughs> you look at the game like the amount of times she just lets the opponent blow by with that half-hearted reach around or whatever i mean she'll at least kind of like fight you in the post a little bit like that's the one thing you probably don't want to do is is post well, her how up often does diana tries to get posted up i mean i feel like mismatches try to go at her at least a little bit especially yeah. last year when they were playing smaller it probably will happen less often this year when they're you know they have more more of their rotations kind of dedicated to real bigs but you know i feel like last year it, it happened a pretty decent amount okay fair enough but uh off the dribble and off the ball probably not even going to try to stay in front of many people um and the transition defense man it's just like oh anytime well, she's she even back in back in transition because she, she's usually complaining about a call 
on the other end. Right? Yeah, so. I mean, if if you anytime she's not getting to the line, it, it's going to take her at least you know eight to ten seconds to to cross half court. So that's this is interesting that you bring that up because I or that you mentioned that because I feel like her the main thing keeping her a good offensive player is her ability to get to the free throw line. But if she's taking a shot at the rim and she doesn't get that basket or that call, she's probably going to take exception to it and then hamper her team's defense on the other end of the court. So it's almost like they kind of fuel each other. Yeah, I I would love to see what like the team only analytics say about opponents' points per possession on Diana Taurasi, you know, missing a yeah, shot around really the rim. Need, that... We really need that tracking data if they can just pony up the money for that. But anyway, I mean, I think the answer is probably a soft yes. She she still gives you a little bit more on offense than she does on defense. But it's to me at this point in her career, she's a real feast or famine player. You know, she's going to give you some games where she definitely is a positive impact player. You know, she's she's just launching and and hitting threes from 27 feet out. Yep. 64% true shooting in wins last season, 48.6% true shooting in losses last season, 12 of her 31 games were at 45% true shooting or under and you know six of her games above 70% true shooting and then you have just five games between 50 and 60% which is kind of what you might expect in like a normal outcome so I, she's just a player who she's either kind of giving you something special and and she really has it going or you know she's going 2 for 13 from beyond the arc and it's it's just not kind of really giving you anything positive because obviously if the threes aren't hitting and she's not getting to the line you know, it's then she's doing nothing for you on the other end of the court anyway. Yeah, exactly. But overall, you know, the numbers were still fairly good. You know, 99th percentile as a spot up player. I don't think there's too much surprise there. 81st percentile as a pick and roll ball handler. And then sixth percentile in transition, Eric. That's uh, got to be a, a little bit of a, a different, you know, that that's all I'm assuming yeah, just missing ball, threes, yeah. you know, those pull up jump shots in transition, uh, just not falling. So you never know if that's she's just kind of going to give you 33% from three in a given season or, or not. But anyway, we, we can move on to the end of the, the rotation here, the bench, I guess. I guess the, the one, you know, solid bench player that sort of has some kind of a, a WNBA reputation that they're bringing in until Shea Petty is able to play, and we're not sure what that timeline looks like, is Michaela Onyewere, who they traded for, as we mentioned. Do you think... Onyewere plays more as a as a four, as a three. It's not like they have a ton of depth at any of these positions, so you can kind of really see them going a number of ways, I guess. Sure, and I feel like this is a conversation we've had pretty often when she was in New York. But this situation, I mean, uh, I think the situ- I think what they've done so far this offseason would suggest they're trying to play her more at the four than at the three. I mean, they cut Kylie Shook without much practice time in training camp. They haven't really brought in any other power forwards, right? I mean, obviously they, they brought back Gustafson. I don't think she's anything other than a center. Um, you could go, you could, you know, see Bree Turner take most of those minutes at the four, but I think there are at least more players on this roster who can masquerade as a three than there are as a four. I would agree. I wouldn't be surprised if Onyewari plays both positions like evenly as she kind of did in New York, but I think at the, at, the, at the moment, she's probably more of a power forward. Yeah, I would agree. And I think. What she gives you as a shooter is probably a little bit more valuable as a four. I mean, I, I right. kind of, as we mentioned, as we kind of talked about when the trade happened, like I, I kind of am into the the three big rotation of Brittany Griner and Bree Turner as starters, and then Michaela Onyewere as the four playing with either one of those players when one is on the bench. I mean, I think that gives you 
pretty good spacing around either a Griner post-centric offense or, you know, maybe open things up with more pick and roll as turn with Turner as the, right, right, right. the center, you know, they, they of course have Megan Gustafson, who is a, a very good offensive player in her own right. You know, I, if memory serves, I, I think Michaela played about 60% power forward and 40% small forward last season. It, it would not surprise me if it was kind of basically the same splits, maybe a little more on the power forward side, but you know, after Onyewere and, and to a lesser extent Gustafson, like things are not looking too good for the the bench here. I mean, there just aren't any players who have proven anything at the WNBA level. They brought back Jenny Sims, uh, Sam Thomas, AP, all-rookie nominee last season, um, but otherwise didn't really do much of anything last year. Don't really know who's backing up a point guard. Suge Sutton, you'd assume, would make the roster, right? I mean, because otherwise they have no ball handlers coming off the bench. Um, Unless you think Avina Westbrook can handle the yeah, ball. Yeah, I mean, they, they claimed Westbrook off of waivers. So that suggests there's at least some kind of interest there. I mean, I'm not much of a Westbrook believer, but... I mean, I would. I don't want to guarantee anything, but I would be very surprised if she did not make the team just based on okay. the other players that, that they have. I mean, Sims and Thomas, you, you kind of profile them as more sort of spot-up shooters, right? They're going to kind of space Thomas the floor in for... Particular, yeah. yeah. You know, I think there are still some other opportunities out there for, for them to bring in somebody else. You know, the, the waiver wire is going to be pretty hot in coming days, Eric, uh, perhaps even before this episode comes out. So sorry if this is a little dated, but you know, if, if they brought in someone from, from the waiver wire, you know, I would be more interested in, as we're kind of saying a backup point guard or, or someone that can do a little bit of initiating a little bit of handling. Um, I I don't think Westbrook is going to profile as like a full-time backup point guard. You know, she has some ball skills, but I I don't think you want her necessarily. She's more of like the tertiary creator. Yeah. Right. But I think Yvonne Anderson, when she's done after Eurobasket, like that would be a great pickup for for Phoenix, someone who is still the zero to two year minimum, which is always important for this team, Eric, uh, you know, but is in her 30s, you know, has played basketball at a very high level. It didn't work out in Connecticut. I, I thought she didn't get the burden that she perhaps deserved. But, you know, 56% true shooting overseas this year, not a, a perfect player. You hope maybe for more like three point volume or more attacking of the rim, you know, she's kind of relying on mid range. But if you just look around, you know, the the world, I guess, at players who can handle the ball that are, you know, on this core's timeline, that would definitely be of interest to me. Maybe one of the players that Indiana ends up letting go of, you know, Maya Caldwell might be interesting on this team. Sure. Um, maybe like Leah Brown later on in the season after repair comes over and, and Atlanta needs to let somebody go. I don't know. I, I I think they're, it is worth noting that they'll have a full minimum, a full veterans minimum to use with Skylar Diggins Smith maternity. Um, and they won't have to just rely on, you know, a lower minimum player. I, I think, you know, maybe a Damaris Dantas might be good there, even though they're pretty good on bigs. If, if they do get another ball handler, but someone that could just, space and pass a little bit uh seems like maybe Dantas is on the way out uh but I guess we'll we'll see there but any thoughts on I guess any of those players what they could bring to uh Phoenix Yvonne Anderson in particular uh I've become a pretty big fan of hers watching EuroLeague the past couple seasons you mentioned she she brings that you know that experience uh I don't want to call her a three-level scorer because obviously the mid-range jump shot is maybe employed a little too much there but she's she's got some legitimate juice off the dribble some legitimate creation juice. And that's something this team is just desperately needing. Because who's really getting into the paint on this team? 
I mean, Tarazi obviously is gonna is gonna attack the rim and get to the free throw line. But other than that, um, it's pretty much either post up or spot up. I mean, right? especially anytime Mariah Jefferson is on the bench, like who do they even have that can dribble the yeah. ball? Like? I don't know. This is it's gonna have to be a point guard by committee, I think, uh, when Jefferson is, is on the is on the bench, or maybe they just they just really intensely stagger Jefferson and Tarazi. Because Tarazi has, I, I think she is, if she really wanted to, she could be a, a pretty good point guard in this league. I mean, she's got the vision. She's got the passing ability. Um, if that was, I've always said, if, if Tarazi came into the league as a, as a dedicated point guard rather than a shooting guard, I think she still would be one of the best players of all time. But at this point in her career, is that something you want to relegate her to? Probably not. Um, also, it just takes a lot more stamina to bring the ball up every single time than to be yep. m- more of an off-ball player. Like, how much does Tarazi even have that in her at, at this age? And That's a great question, man. That's a great question. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of other ball handlers that would be on the waiver wire. Um, I, I know you, you mentioned Nia Cloudon. Or did you mention Nia? I, I didn't, but she's in the notes. So. She's in the notes, yeah. Um, I'm guessing Connecticut will want to keep her, but if not, I think that'd be a good option. Um, who else? Yeah, I I think Clouden probably makes the team, but they did. I mean, I don't think Alexis Morris is uh, a ball handler necessary, but someone on in the perimeter, yeah. I guess, that can play a little bit for them. I I just don't think they're going to bring in like a straight rookie. I feel like it'll be you know an Avino Westbrook type who's at least been in the league for a year, kind of knows what it takes to be in the WNBA. You know, this is where you know I hate to play Captain Hindsight here, but this is where that twenty seventh pick. Uh, and Destiny Harden was not great. Um, I mean, first of all, Taylor Soul was right there. She was the player who was taken immediately after. And while Soul wasn't, while Soul obviously wouldn't address this point guard issue in any other way, when you know, I mean, the, the Mercury knew, like the draft wasn't that long ago. They, they knew they were probably going to be a little short on ball handlers this season. So these draft picks, even though they're third rounders, like in this case, they aren't necessarily throwaway picks. Like if if this is if you're you could draft for need here and come away with a player who would get minutes playing this season, so not really sure what the process was there uh, drafting Harden, drafting Sissoko. Like I... not not to be too unfair here, and, and no disrespect to Harden, but it did kind of feel like just the ultimate sort of like recency bias after a big tournament run type of pick instead mm-hmm. of kind of like you know. The entire scouting process of a player's career. And that happens. That happens every year with somebody. Every year, a player on a big-name program makes a run in the tournament, and a GM says, okay, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll take a flyer on this player. And it rarely works out. You know, That's just the fact of the matter. So it does seem like, like that pick, while it was a later pick in the draft, I think it could have been used a little more efficiently. Because these players were in, like, if they picked a point guard or if they picked a ball handler, there's a good chance that that player will be playing minutes this season. And because they didn't do that, now they're left with this conundrum of uh, what on earth are we doing at, at backup point guard. One thing I wanted to ask you, you know, Gustafson and, and Onionware, kind of their two established bench players that you you really kind of feel pretty good about at least giving you something off the bench. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. Michaela Onionware could, you know, have a decent impact on this team. Who do you think plays more? Uh, you know, which... Which style of backup big do you think they go with? You know, kind of the smaller Michaela at the four or, you know, Gustafson play a, more, a little bit more through the post. You know, she's obviously a well-proven scorer, very, very accomplished overseas. Yeah, she was an absolute beast in EuroLeague women this past season. Um, but I do think Onion Warrior plays more minutes because you have a little bit more positional versatility there. Uh, and yeah, I'm, she can play two spots. It, 
Yeah, I, I hesitate to use the term in this case because I'm not sure if Onionwari excels at either position, but if you're comparing it to Gustafsson, who, in my opinion, is a one-position player, or at the very least, a one-position defender, you uh, already zero have... Zero-position defender, but... Well, yeah, but, I mean, you're, you're, not, you're, you're definitely not going to put her defending any fours, so you pretty much have to play her at the five. And when you already are probably going to be playing Griner however many minutes a game... That, I think, just puts a very hard cap on what Gustafson's ceiling is for this team. Unless Griner, you know, for whatever reason, misses some games. I think Onionwari is going to just get more opportunity because she's just got a little bit more versatility and a little less competition at her respective positions. Um, also, this I know this doesn't really have anything to do with your question, but I believe Sophie Cunningham got injured in the Mercury's last preseason game. And while there's no real report on uh, what the injury was or how serious it was because this is the WNBA, of course. They don't do that sort of thing. If she doesn't end up missing any sort of time, I think Onion Wary is probably the favorite to step into that starting small forward role. Yeah, I would agree with that. But that's just, I mean, we can kind of transition this into strengths and weaknesses. The the biggest weakness about this team, I think, is probably depth. You know, oh, it's, it's, yeah. any how missed many... time to Jefferson, Tarasi, or Cunningham and this team, you know, you have a hard time seeing how they even stay competitive. Honestly, maybe they could handle Tarasi more than those other two because, you know, maybe Sims can be a capable spot-up shooter. Maybe Thomas can be a scape, uh, capable spot-up shooter, but they have no other point guards and they have no other real, you know, I, I know people hate the term, but like 3 and D small forwards who can kind of do what Sophie Cunningham does. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's difficult to... You know, what I think they need to do, I mean... I know I said this before, and this this might be kind of like a well, no dub, but um, they got to stagger these lineups. Like they need to make a concerted effort to do some staggering here, because I don't think you can afford to have both Tarazi and Griner off the floor for too often. Because otherwise, just where is this? Where are these shots going? You've got so many players on this team who you, you just have no idea whether. And maybe you know, maybe we're wrong. Maybe Jenny Sims comes in and puts up a sixth woman of the year caliber campaign. Maybe Onion Warrior does take that next step as an offensive player and shows legitimate ball skills can see a world you know especially surrounded with this type of offensive talent where anywhere is hitting her threes and she's attacking the rim like she kind of she showed flashes of all the things that she needs to kind of do well for sure she has it, it would not surprise me otherwise i don't know there's just there's just so much uncertainty with this bench um it, it's something where i don't think they're going to feel comfortable playing this bench too often but at the same time how can you afford to run diana tarazi into the ground at this stage in her career like these players are going to have to play at some point. What is the combination? How how do they make this work? I mean, I I don't see many scenarios in which this is going to be beneficial for them, but um, Yeah, so Bree Turner was second in the league in total minutes last year. She's, you know, she can give you what you need her to give you in terms of kind of playing her heavy heavy minutes, which you know, is not necessarily congruent with what this team actually has depth at. You know, they they're probably best at you know replacing their big spots more so obviously uh you know those are two very good players her and Griner so you just want them to play as much as possible but certainly the big spots they have more depth than than the wing is what I'm saying um but outside of that you know Tarasi is not necessarily going to play 30 plus minutes a game you know Mariah Jefferson basically just you know finished her first season playing 800 minutes since her rookie season in 2016 you know she's dealt with her own stuff over the course of her career Sophie Cunningham is not 
a super high minutes player, probably a little bit of a lower minutes player than you might expect. They don't really have lean on your starters, super heavy minutes type of players, which might be a problem for them, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Do they have any strengths? Can we talk about something positive for this team? Yeah, we'll get back to weaknesses, I guess. But um, I think they'll be able to get to the line okay. You know, they have Brittany Griner. Diana Trossi is an A-plus grifter. You know, she she can get to the line with the best of them even still. I think they'll actually be able to field some pretty good shooting when they have, you know, their their core group on the court. Jefferson, we mentioned, and Cunningham, two of the best three-point shooters in the league last year. We don't really need to say too much about Diana Taurasi. A lot of their bench players, if they're good at anything, it's probably hitting catch-and-shoot threes. So I think that'll be a, a strength. Um, you know, I think they'll be a pretty good cutting team. We, we kind of talked about how that might be mitigated just by playing two bigs at the same time. But Turner, Sophie Cunningham... Uh, Michaela Onuwere, those are, are three pretty good cutters, I think, and those are players that'll play a decent amount. Um, honestly, like I, I would not be surprised if this was at least a decent offense. If their core players can give them the type of minutes that they need them to be able to give them to stay competitive, like they should be able to score the ball pretty good, I think. Can we just condense all of this into saying they're going to have Brittany Griner? Because like all of this, except for maybe the, the three-point shooting, but obviously she opens up that up as well. The, the cutting... Griner opens that up. The spot up shooting, Griner opens that up. Just being a good half court offense, Griner does certainly does her part in, in making them a very good half court offense. I mean, she is she's the best post up player in the league. Um, so post up, posting up is definitely going to be a strength of theirs. But um, you you saw how they had to overhaul their entire playing style without her last season. Um, it really really stinks that that Diggin Smith is for all intents and purposes, no longer a part of this team because they could really have some high-end offensive talent here. But if there is a if there is a player in this league who can basically make or break her team's half-court offense, it is Brittany Griner. Um, and of course, depending on, on, on where she is uh, returning to her professional basketball journey. Yeah, I, I would be remiss to even really put too much expectations on, on Griner mm-hmm. individually. You know, it's obviously just a, a tough situation. We, we hope for the best. One of the things I think I'm looking forward to most in the league is, you know, that Phoenix game when they come to New York and, and I'll be able to hear the ovation that Griner gets in person. I think that's going to be a pretty special moment, basically in 12 arenas around the league this year. So yeah, it's, it's going to happen in every, it's, it's going to be amazing. But just in terms of what she could give you, I mean, we have no idea and I, I really don't even know how you kind of like prognosticate about that kind of thing. Um, that's true. And I don't want to, I don't want to put too much pressure or anything like that, but the last time we saw her play professional basketball, I'm saying. She was the best player in the world or she playing was like amazing, it. Amazing, you know? incredible, yeah. To your point about Diggin Smith, the one season we got Diggin Smith and Griner together for a full season, they made the finals. So it, it was a pretty special combination. And it's unfortunate that, you know, for whatever reason, it just it didn't work out long term with Diggin Smith and the organization. Are there any other strengths that we could get to? Because, you know, it, it's, uh, it was tough to come up to too many, come up with too many individually. It was. I don't think this is going to be one of the better teams in the league. Um, of course, I see. There, I think there is a world where Griner and Tarazi just have one last major run in them, and they just drag this team to maybe like a fifth or sixth seed, sixth seed. But I think they will be on kind of like the lower end of the the whole uh, playoff situation. I, I do just, think there's more downside to upside with this sure, roster. I mean, the weaknesses are just a lot more obvious. Yeah, and... With that being said, I think they're probably going to be one of the worst defenses in the league outside of Turner, who has anchored them to passable in the past. Like they they don't really have a ton of plus 
defenders really anywhere Especially else on the perimeter like who is who is getting stops yeah who is able to stop a ball handler from getting all the way to the rim from the perimeter not not too many players um they're they're not going to be able to prevent dribble penetration at all again as much as Skylar Diggins-Smith for her overall team defense maybe not a perfect player but against a ball handler kind of stopping dribble penetration I think she was pretty good much better I think than Mariah Jefferson in that individual area Tarasi not a good defensive player you know all of their bench players I think I mean basically everybody in their rotation aside from Turner is more of an offensive player than a defensive player Maybe, you know, maybe Westbrook can give you some intensity defensively, but who else is really a plus defensive player for their position? You know, it's interesting, Stephen, for as much as we talk about how front court defense is more important than backcourt defense, how how many even average defenses are built by having no passable perimeter defenders? I mean, Cunningham is, is, is I guess, a pretty decent perimeter defender. Yeah, she's, like, she's passable. I wouldn't say she's like an amazing defensive player. She's certainly not going to make up the weaknesses of the other spots, but she doesn't deserve to be in the same breath probably as, you know, Toronto. I'm talking about who who is out there guarding, I don't know, Kalia Copper, Ryan Howard, Jewel Lloyd, the best perimeter. I know you always say like, well, there aren't a lot of perimeter scorers out there who who, who can do it like that. But man, it's not just about volume perimeter scorers. It's about defending the point of attack, defending the pick and roll, staying disciplined in your rotations, help defense from the perimeter. Does this team even have any of that? No, I don't think so. I mean, this team is probably going to give up like 115 offensive ratings whenever they play this like the aces, you know. Yeah. Uh, depth, obviously, we hit on. They're they're never going to get out in transition. You know, they have a player or two who who can, you know, Cunningham can, Onyewari can, but they don't have anyone to kind of run the break in that way. I They're going to be a very poor defensive rebounding team, so that'll help hurt their transition. And so many of their players are just not interested in getting out in, in transition. So I think that'll not be a strength that will be a weakness i think is offensive transition and i would imagine defensive transition well another thing uh, hurting their uh, transition game uh, defensive rebounding when was the last time mercury were even average at rebounding the ball defensively it's always been a weakness on both ends offense and defensive weakness on, on, on both ends and it's it's so much more difficult to get transition opportunities when you don't rebound the ball i mean that's just it's, it's the way it is so I think also probably forcing turnovers. This kind of goes hand in hand with what we've been saying, but when you've got Griner, um, you're probably going to be playing more of a conservative defensive scheme. Um, when you've got like no no adept perimeter defenders, then you're probably also going to be playing a more conservative defensive scheme. They were okay at forcing turnovers last season, but again, I, I think I think that whole thing changes now. If you had to just make a, a kind of simple yes or no guess, do you think this team makes the playoffs? Because I think we both agree that it's in the world of possibilities for sure. Like they, there are paths to do it. There are, are very clear paths not to do it. But if if you had to go on record, yes or no, do you think they make the playoffs? Yes. Okay, I think I think I would say no, but I I don't feel strongly. They're definitely I mean, our, our, our content thus far has suggested that it's more of a no. I I just can't count out a team that can't can't count out a team completely that has Tarazi and Griner on it to miss the playoffs entirely. That that would be a massive failure. Yeah, certainly fair. And, you know, they certainly, I think, have probably a better player, you know, if Griner is, is Brittany Griner than any of the other players in that neighborhood that, that they might be kind of fighting for from like 7 to 10 or, or 7 to 12. So, yeah, I, I, I think I would lean no, but it wouldn't surprise me if they snuck well, in there. Whenever you ask this, this sort of question, it's who else is missing the playoffs? We assume Indy. We assume Seattle. 
we assume Minnesota. Minnesota. So then um, to so me, it's, you know, Phoenix and LA. And Chicago, probably. And right. Chicago, I guess, are in that neighborhood. Okay. Right? That Those are the ones that I would seriously consider well, in terms of... I think there's more disaster potential on this Mercury team than either the Sparks or the Sky. Um, but I think their offensive ceiling is higher, too. Yeah, I would say... I would agree with that. They have higher highs and lower lows, I think, than either of those two teams, I would say, probably. And that is a good way to uh, wrap up this episode, I believe. Let's do it. Thank you all so much for listening. We have made it through our team outlooks. If you want to support the show, please do so by following, rating, and reviewing on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at DoubleDownWNBA. You can follow Eric at E or myself at Trinkwalt. And uh, hope you enjoyed the team previews. They are uh a lot of work each year, but one of my favorite exercises. It's, it's one of the show's uh, flagship pieces of content, something we've been doing. This is our fourth season already. Can you believe that? Fourth season, fourth uh, fourth round of Team Outlooks. A little, little bit different than year one, but here we are. Yeah, here we are. All right. Again, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We, we really definitely appreciate it, seriously. Um, and we'll talk to you when we're playing basketball. How about that? Let's uh, let's go, Sky. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, let's go, WNBA. He's not joking. We... Uh, Again, we really appreciate your listenership, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.